Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, hey there, TCC. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. And you can probably take a wild guess as to what our passage is going to center on. We're going to start in verse 28. The triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem is the beginning of what's known as Passion Week or Holy Week, the single most monumental week of all of human history. But you might have noticed in our series that we've already been looking at the events of this week of history, that we've been in the Passion Week for the past several Sundays now. We've seen the Last Supper. We've seen Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives. We've seen Jesus arrested and tried before Pilate and the crowd screaming out, crucify him. And now we're flashing back. You know, there's a storytelling device called Inmidius Rays, Inmidius Rays, which is Latin for into the middle of things. And you'll see this trope in all kinds of movies and television where the narrative will open not at the beginning, but in the middle of the story, usually around the end of the second act where the protagonist is at his greatest peril. And then the narrative will flash back to the beginning and then catch you up to where we started and then finish off the rest of the story. And it's a useful device because it's a cold open that hooks the audience. It elicits curiosity. We wonder, how did the protagonist get in this situation? It invites a mystery. and We want to read on or, or watch on to find out what happens. But the device really works best the higher the degree of contrast between our starting point or in our middle point, right? So let's say we open a movie with a plane being shot at and a man jumps out of the airplane just before it explodes. He's free falling from the sky without a parachute and then flashback to his first day training at the CIA. Mm. It's not great contrast. We don't know the details, but we can imagine that working for the CIA might conceivably put you in dangerous situations. But if we take the same opening, right, man jumps out of an exploding airplane, flashback to his first day of his new job, delivering pizzas. It's better, higher contrast. It elicits more curiosity about how did you wind up in that situation? Well, today in our series, This is our Inmidius Rays. We've been in the middle of Passion Week, and now we're flashing back to the start of the week, and the contrast could not be more stark. The crowds were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Flashback to this Sunday, and they're shouting out, Hosanna. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How do we end up with Jesus on a cross? Let's find out. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. 
When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you like parades? I'm not really a parade guy. I've been in parades. I've seen parades in person and on television and never cared for them. I find the Disneyland parades mostly to be obnoxious. It just makes it harder to traverse the park. The Macy's Day Parade is just watching floating advertisements. The Rose Bowl Parade, it's impressive, I guess. I don't know. That's the thing you did. Maybe it's just me, but... I hear the announcers who introduce the floats, describe the floats, comment on them going, ooh, wow, would you look at that? And it just strikes my ears as hollow, as feigning interest. Well, on Palm Sunday, we have a sort of impromptu parade. And there's a crowd drawn to it, and there's a big commotion and noise through the parade route, and the city is buzzing with excitement. It says in Matthew that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and people were asking, who is this? You can imagine it. There's all this shouting and noise and excitement. You'd rush over, I'd rush over. You'd come to the parade and you'd look and wow, it's a man on a donkey. Well, would you look at that? Never seen that before. You know, even if you like parades, this isn't much of one. This is not about the pageantry. It's not about the spectacle. It's about who this person is. That's the only thing this parade has to offer. And that's either everything to you or it's nothing. And in the crowd, you have different responses. You have the Pharisees who flat out reject him, who are not participating in this, who are not shouting out Hosanna. They want it to stop, right? Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They understand the implications here, and they reject it. They reject Jesus as the Messiah, and they're not waving palm fronds or laying their cloaks on the ground. And come Friday, they're going to be crying out, crucify him. But you also have the disciples, the ones leading the charge here, who believe that Jesus is the Christ and that this is the fulfillment of God's prophecy, specifically Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. 
His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And they believe that this is who Jesus is, that he is a king, righteous and victorious, who is coming to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom over the whole earth and bring peace. That's who they believe he is. And come Friday, they'll scatter, they'll hide, they'll be silent, and in the case of Peter, they'll even deny him, but they're not shouting out, crucify him. And then I think there's a third group. Now, the Bible is not explicit on this point. There is no definitive biblical evidence to support the notion that the same people who were shouting Hosanna on Sunday were shouting crucify him on Friday. But it seems reasonable to infer that some people probably did. Certainly not all, but probably a contingent, because what we do seem to see is a shift in the city of public opinion. And how does that happen? How do you go from shouting Hosanna on Sunday and crucify him come Friday? I think it's a lot more common than we may think. God says this in Isaiah, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see that in church. You see that outside the church. Mahatma Gandhi once said this. It's a familiar quote. We've heard this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's a convicting statement. There's truth there often. It's a challenging statement and one that we do need to internalize. We are called as Christians to be like Christ, to live our lives like Christ. But here's the thing. Gandhi rejected Christ. There were many efforts to convert Gandhi to Christianity. He rejected it. Now, I'm not making a proclamation about where Gandhi ended up. I I leave all of that up to our good judge. But I do know what he wrote and what he said. Gandhi rejected Jesus as the Son of God. He rejected Jesus as the only way, honoring him with his lips, but his heart is far from him. He likes Christ, but he's no Christ at all. Well, plenty of people will grab palm fronds and say nice things about Jesus, but when it comes down to it, They reject him because it was never the real Jesus that they liked anyway. You know, I like this quote from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He said this, Almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus. Hardly anyone would dare to say a bad word about him, right? Like Gandhi. He likes Christ. But how many people know the real Jesus? There's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's Therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Martyr Jesus, A good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. 
There's gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones and flowing hair and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks German. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within by listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us and so we can sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. I think, I think that's how you can go from shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to shouting out crucify him. Because they weren't following the real Jesus. They were projecting onto him their own desires. Right? He's coming into Jerusalem as a conquering king. And they wanted that. They wanted the overthrow of the Romans. They wanted the restoration of Israel and the ascension of Jerusalem. And there's truth in that, right? Jesus is a conquering king who comes into Jerusalem to conquer sin and death and ushers in his kingdom and brings peace between God and man as the prophecy said he would. There's truth in that, just as there's some truth in the laundry list of Jesus's we cited. Jesus is a king. He's just not the king that they wanted. And plenty of people will reject the real Jesus because they want him to conform to their image rather than to conform to his. Plenty of people reject the real Jesus because they want him to conform to their will rather than to conform to his. Or they'll grab palm fronds and they'll mouth the words just so long as there's money in the bank and food in the pantry. Just so long as there's health and prosperity. Just so long as there's promotions and upward mobility. Just so long as there's peace and happiness. Just so long as it's carefree and burdenless. And as soon as it's not, they'll walk away. Because they weren't following the real Jesus anyway. 
And Jesus weeps over that. That's what we see in our passage amongst all this celebrating, all of these shouts of joy. Jesus weeps in sorrow. Let's look at that again. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus prophesies over the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which does happen about 40 years later. And he ties it to his rejection. Because that's the truth of the gospel. The truth that we may not like is that there is only peace through Christ and only death and destruction apart from him. And so rejecting him is death. And Jesus does weep over that, over those who reject him. He cries for Jerusalem because the Messiah, God's anointed, the one that has been promised and prophesied and hoped for is coming to them at last. Only they're going to reject him. You know, earlier in Luke, Jesus says these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And Jesus does weep over it. That really probably changes the way he feels about all the praise and shouting and proclamations happening around him. It's a lot of pageantry, but it doesn't mean a thing if we don't know who he really is or what he really came to do. Plenty of people will wave palm branches for a political Jesus, for a therapist Jesus, for a Starbucks Jesus, for a guru Jesus, for a spiritual Jesus, or an open-minded Jesus, or an affirming Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. Plenty of people will shout out Hosanna to the Jesus who comes to give us more money, to the Jesus who helps us reach our full potential, to the Jesus who offers us enlightenment, to the Jesus who affirms our lifestyle and our worldview, but not the Jesus who comes to deal with our sin. Did you notice that in that list? Not a single one of the various manifestations of Jesus deals with sin. That's how you know they've got it twisted. Not one addresses the fundamental problem of all of humanity, which is what Jesus came for. All of us are sinners deserving of the judgment and the destruction that Jesus weeps over. Even in his crucifixion, he says these words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know who he is. But the remarkable thing of Christianity is that Jesus does not come for the palm fronts or the joyous parades, though he does receive our honor and praise and will be glorified for all eternity. But he comes to be rejected. He comes precisely for the people who are calling out, crucify him, because he comes to redeem sinners. He comes to die in our stead. And by his rejection, we find acceptance before God through him. But it has to be the real him. A counterfeit won't do. He will not offer you lies. He will not say that there is more than one way when there isn't. 
He will not say that there are not consequences to sin when there are. He will not offer you false gods or false Jesus that you like better, that boosts your self-esteem, that comports with your vision, that is tailored to your sensibilities. No, he will not offer you a false Jesus. But he will offer you everything he has. He will offer you the truth. He will offer you the way. He will offer you the life. He will offer you his very son. If you don't know him, if he's not your God, if he's not your Lord and Savior, then I don't know what all the commotion is about. Who is this person? That's the question that is asked as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. And the challenge for us is, are we like the crowd? Are we following the real Jesus? Are we conforming to his image? Or do we want him to conform to ours? Is Christ more a reflection of the current mood or our projected desires? Or is he our Lord and God? Who is this man? That's the question that we must answer as we enter into this week. That's the only thing that this parade has to offer. And that's either everything to you or it's nothing. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.